Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 220. I'm Douglas Wilson. I'm really glad that you joined us. You know, you could have spent your 15 minutes doing something else, right? Let's talk about abortion ministries, abortion tactics, ministries, and so on. I'm not going to get into, at least not directly, the abolitionist, incrementalist debate here, because that's sort of on the political side. And I've got views on that, and you can look them up on my blog and, and so on. But I, wa- I want to talk about sort of direct contact evangelism and witness, prophetic witness and evangelism, the kind of thing that you would do outside a Planned Parenthood clinic, or the kind of thing you would do as you go up onto a college campus to do uh, open-air evangelism or open-air interaction with students on abortion. And someone might say, yeah, but why don't, why don't you go up there with the gospel? Well, John the Baptist, when he preaches and when all of Judea responds to him, his message is repent and believe, repent and believe. He, he came uh, preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, if we want to say something like repent, that is a word that requires content. Repent of what? So if you if you go up onto a college modern college campus at Behemoth State U, and you are preaching repentance, and you've got a heckler. I've done open air preaching on on campuses, and sometimes you get a heckler. Let's say the heckler starts saying, "Repent of what? Repent of what?" I'm not going to say bank robbery because the chances would be one in a million that I'm I'm dealing with any bank robbers there. I'm not likely de- dealing with bank robbers. Now, bank robbers ought to repent, but I'm probably not talking to bank robbers. So if I'm preaching to college students on a modern secular campus, what I would tell them to repent of would be fornication, abortion, drunkenness, drug use, basically the the party life, the party commando life. Now, that's confrontational. And confrontation in order for confrontation to work, it's got to be loving obviously, but it also has to be confrontational. There are too many Christians who think that love means no confrontation, and there are other Christians who believe who have accepted that wrong-headed dichotomy, and they have said they go the other way. They say, if it's confrontational, which it must be, then it must not be loving. So you've got people who, harangue, you know, campus preachers who harangue the students instead of preaching God's Word to them, and then you've got loving Christians who just never want to confront anybody with their sin. A ministry that Nancy and I support that does good work balancing these things, it's a pro-life ministry that does open-air contact evangelism and prophetic confrontation on college campuses and outside high schools as well, is an organization called Tiny Heartbeat Ministries. If you want to check it out, all lowercase letters, Tiny Heartbeat Ministries all lowercase, all together, dot com, tinyheartbeatministries.com. They do good work. They're zealous, they're evangelical, they're Protestant, they're loving, and they don't pull punches. 
they will have placards that show the effects of abortion. But I just recently saw one of their, um, you know, information video about their ministry, and I saw a young man changing his mind about abortion on film because of those those placards. They infuriate people. They also convict people, and they also persuade people. So the thing that's wonderful about this is when Peter preaches at Pentecost, uh, the end result of his sermon is they were cut to the heart, and they said, brothers, what, what shall we do? The United States is currently under judgment. We, uh, God is allowing us to pull, pull folly down on our own heads, which we are doing, industriously doing. And the only way out is repentance. This is we are so far in. There, there's no way to nuance this. There's no way to extricate ourselves by tiptoeing out. It's going to have to be Jesus. It's going to have to be straightforward, straight up the middle repentance. And abortion is one of the great sins we have to repent of. And this ministry is really, really worth your while. It's not just anti-abortion, although it is that. They also do trips. They also do uh, outreaches where they're simply preaching the gospel. This is a good um, ministry to check out. If you are not currently supporting any kind of pro-life ministry, this would be a good place to start. Continuing on with episode 220 of the podcast, we come now, as we always do, to hamartiology. In our study of hamartiology, the next sin that's addressed is the sin of persecuting. Persecuting. The Greek word is ekdioko, ekdioko, e-k-d-i-o-k-o, uh, ekdioko. And its one use is found in Luke 11.49. Luke 11.49 says this, Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute. So God is saying, I'm going to send apostles and prophets, and this is the wisdom of God speaking, and these messengers that I send are going to be killed, and some of them are going to be killed and persecuted. Uh, this has been the pattern over the ages. God sends messengers to the people, and the people don't want to hear the message. God sends messengers, and the people don't want to hear it. Indeed, they feel afflicted by it. They feel themselves persecuted. One of the reasons that persecutors are not more troubled in their consciences is that they feel like they are simply retaliating. So persecutors are often those who feel persecuted. People who feel persecuted feel justified in the persecuting. All right. So, and this is how these things, these tangles wind up. When, you know, the old um, medieval practice of hunting out and burning witches. Well, the people who do that are doing that because they feel persecuted by witchcraft. They think that there are women in the village who are casting spells and making wells go bad and stealing children and doing all these awful things. And, and because they feel persecuted, they retaliate. And that retaliation they call justice, but it's actually persecution. The one bringing the message from God, in other words, is thought to be the troublemaker. So the people are there in their sins. Someone comes to them with a message from God, and he, with that message, is the troublemaker. This is why Ahab, why King Ahab, accused Elijah of being a troubler of Israel. 
when the guilty party was actually someone whose name rhymed with Ahab. Ahab was the one who introduced the false religion, or his wife Jezebel, Jezebel did, and he was the one who introduced the idolatrous worship that caused Israel to go crispy brown, and Elijah was not the uh, final cause of that. It was Ahab. It was Jezebel. So when the retaliators persecute, they're willing to go pretty far because their consciences are clean. As Jesus put it here, they slay and persecute. And frequently when they do, they think that they're doing the Lord's work. For example, Jesus says uh, in John 16 too, they shall put you out of the synagogue. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. So a man will kill you and he'll think that he's doing God a favor. That's precisely the position that Saul of Tarsus was in when he was persecuting the church. He was full, he was an insolent man, made people blaspheme, did awful things, but he thought he was on God's good side. He thought he was doing God a favor with this. So truly, persecuting someone is a blinding sin. Persecuting someone is a blinding sin. Continuing on with the podcast, episode 220, uh, the book that I want to talk about, the book I want to review here is um, a book by a friend of mine, Chris Wiley, and it's his latest book, In the House of Tom Bombadil. In the House of Tom Bombadil. His first book is Man of the House, which is a very good book. Then Canon Press published The Household and the War for the Cosmos, and then just now, In the House of Tom Bombadil. Now, notice that all three titles have house somewhere in the title. Man of the House, Household, and the War for the Cosmos, and In the House of Tom Bombadil, and then that's not really accidental. Canon Press released uh, this book and my book, Gashmu Sayeth It, and Michael Foster's book that he wrote with Benan Tennant called uh, It's Good to Be a Man. So, It's Good to Be a Man, Gashmu Sayeth It, and in the House of Tom Bombadil, were all released together as part of a, they called it a Dominion bundle. And uh, having just read In the House of Tom Bombadil, I can see why they identified it as a Dominion-oriented book. Chris does a great job with this because he, and I'm not going to give you any spoilers here in the review, because Tom Bombadil really is enigmatic. You know, what the question sort of jumps off the page at you. You're reading, in the, you're reading this um, glorious book, The Lord of the Rings. And, well, I'll, I'll say this about Tolkien. Tolkien is, the only, is a masterful writer. I love his books. I'm going to read, be rereading him until I go to be with the Lord. Uh, so there's that. This is, I'm saying this as a fan. I'll just put it that way. But Tolkien is about the only person I know of that could make going to heaven sad. And Frodo and the others go down to the Grey Havens to go off into eternal bliss. It's gray and quiet, and autumn leaves are blowing, and you've got this uh, Celtic, you, you assume there's a Celtic melancholy song playing in the background. And the stakes are high in Middle-earth, and Tolkien's favorite color is gray. And gray rocks, gray eyes, gray evening, gray morning, everything's gray. Everything's gray. Except for Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil comes in with a splash of color, bright, 
color, yellow, blue, blah. And the, there's kind of a discordant element in all of this. What is this? Who is this? What is he doing here? What's his function in the story? Because he doesn't really move the plot forward. He gets the hobbits out of a few scrapes, but he mostly dazzles them with his identity and presence. So what's Tom Bombadil doing here? Now, Chris wraps this up in a very satisfying way, and it's satisfying because he doesn't nail it down on all four corners. It's not like he says, this is Tom Bombadil. I found this hint in, the, in a footnote in the Cimmerillion, and I pieced together this, this argument that will show you definitively what and who Tom Bombadil is. Even though he doesn't nail it down definitively, he gives a very good supposition for, for you to work with. By the time you finish with this book, I think you'll understand the role that Tom Bombadil plays, what he's there for, what he's good for, and why it's, he's not just this extraneous, odd decoration dangling off the side of the book. So, I really commend it to you. In the House of Tom Bombadil. For more from Doug on the tactics of cultural reformation, listen to the Rules for Reformers audiobook. Narrated by Pastor Toby Sumter. You can check it out today at mycanonplus.com.